Hey everybody, welcome back to Murder Alphabet Soup. I'm Kira. Uh, first of all, let me say sorry. I know I missed a week. I got really sick last week, and trust me, you did not you did not want to hear me in that condition. It's not good. I probably still sound kind of weird, so if so, that's why. Um, but yeah, I'm back now, and here we are. I'm also trying out a new mic today, so that's awesome. I'm working on making this podcast better all the time. It's truly a one-woman operation here, so I thank you for bearing with me if you've been listening. And if you're new, welcome. I know in past episodes I've done two cases or like a main case and a shorter case, but this one needed an episode all its own. And I'm going to give a warning up top that this one does get pretty graphic, so you've been warned. I have placed a couple of interstitials after some pretty uh, brutal parts where I'm going to read you guys some funny headlines I've come across just as a little break. And that's not to, you know, downplay or gloss over what the victims went through. I just, you know, like a lot of people, I'm sure I deal with stuff like this with humor. And so I thought it might be nice to put a couple of little breaks in there. But this week, C is for collection, and we're about to dive into the case of Robert Berdella, a truly twisted individual who came to be known as the Collection Killer. He described his murders as some of his darkest fantasies becoming his reality, and he took the lives of at least six men between 1984 and 1987 after forcing them to endure weeks of captivity and torture at a time. going to start all the way at the beginning on January 31st, 1949 in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. This is where Robert Andrew Berdella was born. He was the first of two sons born to Robert Berdella Sr., who worked as a die setter for the Ford Motor Company, and Mary Berdella, who was a homemaker. Berdella's father, being Catholic, kept a pretty religious household, and the family attended Mass pretty regularly. Berdella had a speech impediment and was severely nearsighted from an early age, which required him to wear thick glasses. He was a smart kid, but he didn't really play outside much. He was a bit of a loner. He didn't really have many friends. His father was one that wanted his sons to be active in sports, which Robert's brother, who was seven years younger than him, was, and he was involved in various sports from an early age. Robert, on the other hand, was not, and this was partially due to him being diagnosed with high blood pressure that he took medication for. Although Robert did well in school, and as I said earlier, he was a pretty intelligent kid, Robert's father would occasionally be physically and emotionally abusive to Robert. Some of the physical abuse involved being beaten with a leather strap, and from what I found, I don't think Robert's younger brother, Daniel, was safe from this treatment either, despite having the aptitude for sports. Even though Robert did well, teachers found him kind of hard to teach. He was rather distant and also rarely engaged with his peers. Once Berdella started going through puberty, he realized he was homosexual, but he kept this to himself for years and briefly had a girlfriend in his early teens. But in his mid-teens, he sort of developed a more kind of rude attitude towards women as a way of kind of feeling and seeming more confident. It was also during this time that he became more interested in art and cooking. In 1965, he saw the film adaptation of John Fowle's book, The Collector, 
in which a man stalks and abducts a young woman and holds her in his windowless basement as a pretty specimen. This film made a lasting impression on Robert. On Christmas Day 1965, while Robert was in Canton, Ohio, visiting relatives, his father died of a heart attack at the age of 39. After Robert returned to his hometown, his family gave him the news that his father had died, and he turned to his religion for comfort and did a lot of reading on many other faiths, but ultimately became pretty frustrated with religion in general. After his father's death, his mom remarried, which he did not like at all and saw it as his mother betraying his father. He started withdrawing more and more from the family and becoming more immersed in his hobbies of painting and collecting coins and stamps. One source of stamps for his collection was writing to pen pals in foreign countries like Burma and Vietnam. Pen pals would also send photos of ancient architecture and historical icons, which gave Robert an interest in primitive art and antiques. Robert graduated from Cuyahoga Falls High School in 1967 with pretty awesome grades and then relocated to Kansas City where he enrolled at the Kansas City Art Institute and he had the hopes of one day becoming a college professor. And his first year went pretty well. He was a talented student who was eager to learn, but by his second year he didn't like answering to any kind of authority. He was becoming increasingly involved with drugs and was dealing some of the drugs his group of friends were supplying him with to other students. This is also when Robert started drinking a lot, as, you know, a lot of people do in college. I know I did. <laughs> if you are a true crime fanatic like me, you'll know that abusing and killing animals as a child or teenager is often a sign of a larger issue and something that many known serial killers participate in. Robert was no exception to this. He tortured animals on at least three occasions as a student, during two of which he tortured a chicken and a duck in front of peers, and a third where he was using tranquilizers and sedatives on a dog, basically as an experiment to see what would happen. At 19 years old, he was arrested trying to sell meth to an undercover officer and was released on $3,000 bond, which today is about $22,950. So, you know, nothing to sneeze at. He pleaded guilty to this and got five years suspended sentence. He and two other students were arrested a month later with possession of LSD and marijuana. The charges were later dropped due to lack of evidence, but he still ended up spending five nights in jail for not being able to post bond. In 1969, the administrators of the Art Institute were not happy with Robert after he killed and cooked a duck in the name of art, I'm guessing as an art project, and he ended up voluntarily withdrawing from the college. He stayed in Kansas City and moved into 4315 Charlotte Street in the Hyde Park District. Not too long before this, Robert started working as a short order cook in various restaurants around Kansas City, as well as operating a side business out of his home selling art and antiques that he would get through contacts that he had in Africa, Asia, South America, and various other countries he had known from having as pen pals. By this time, Robert had been pretty openly gay for a few years, and throughout the 70s, he spent a lot of time getting close to young men that were involved with drugs or petty crimes or sex work and would then try to essentially get them to change their ways, and he was trying to, you know, free them from these lifestyles. 
In the late 70s, Robert would assist the South Park Crime Prevention and Neighborhood Association with organizational activities. He led neighborhood watch programs. Neighbors have said that he brought dishes to block parties. He was a decent neighbor. Other residents would describe him as flamboyant, uh, a bit of a haughty attitude, but nonetheless community-minded. As an adult, he often sported Hawaiian shirts and still wore his thick-rimmed glasses. On the outside, the worst thing about him living in the neighborhood was the slightly unkempt yard of his yellow house. By the 1980s, Robert didn't have a lot of older friends, so he kind of relied on these younger guys as a source of friendship, even though he was frustrated that they weren't listening to him when it came to him trying to help them turn their lives around. He would have sexual relations with a lot of these young guys, and since he was letting them stay rent-free in his house when they didn't have many places to go and lending them money, he used sexual engagement as a way to basically control them. It was also around this time that while having become a senior cook at several Kansas City restaurants, his side business was doing really well. By 1981, he had several national and international connections for his business, and this started becoming his main focus when it came to work, and he stopped cooking to focus on it, opening his own booth at the Westport Flea Market in 1982. He named his shop Bob's Bazaar Bazaar, where he continued to sell and trade primitive jewelry, art, and antiques. There were months that the shop would turn a pretty good profit, but there were also months where he struggled and would end up selling items to fellow shop owners at a lower rate. He would also scavenge for items to sell or temporarily rent rooms in his house to make ends meet. This market was where Robert would meet who was his first known victim. Robert was becoming acquainted with a fellow merchant named Paul Howell, who had a booth near Robert's. Soon, Robert also got to know Paul's son, Jerry. Jerry Howell and his friends would make fun of Robert for being openly gay, although Robert says that Jerry had later told him that he and his friends occasionally made money as male sex workers. Sometime in the early 80s, Paul Howell moved his business to a store in a building that was at the intersection of 39th and Main Street, with his family moving into the apartment above the shop. Jerry and Robert would have occasional fights, but ultimately would stay casual friends. And by the summer of 84, Jerry turned 19. On July 5th of that year, Robert agreed to drive Jerry to a dance contest in Merriam. Both at his house and on the way to the contest, Robert plied Jerry with alcohol, Valium, and acepromazine until he was unconscious. Robert then injected Hal with a tranquilizer before tying him to his bed. Hal was restrained to Robert's bed for about 28 hours. During this time, Robert repeatedly drugged, raped, tortured, and violated him with foreign objects. Throughout this time, Hal would ask Robert why he was doing this to him and beg to be freed, but Robert ignored it all. This ended when Robert says he, quote, either asphyxiated on his own vomit or the combination of the gag and the medicines were too strong for him to be able to catch a breath. After briefly attempting to resuscitate Jerry, he dragged his body to the basement and suspended his body over a cooking pot. He then made cuts to his jugular and inner elbows, leaving the body to drain overnight. The next day, he dismembered Jerry's body with a chainsaw and boning knives, and he then wrapped the parts in newspaper and trash bags before placing those in larger trash bags and putting them outside for the garbage service to collect. 
After cops started looking for Jerry and questioning Robert, he said that he had driven him to the contest, they parted ways, and he hadn't seen him since. For this murder and every other murder to follow, Robert would keep detailed documentation of each act committed on his victims by writing it in his log. He would later claim that it wasn't for his enjoyment, but for his physical and mental satisfaction. Which sounds kind of weird, but to me it just sounds like in his mind it wasn't something he wanted to do, it was something that he felt that he had to do. Almost a year goes by, and on April 10th, 1985, a 23-year-old Robert Sheldon arrives at Berdella's house asking if he could stay with Berdella for a short time. He had lodged at Berdella's place before, and according to Robert, he always gave him his rent, but this was still an inconvenience to him. Two days later, Berdella came home and Sheldon was intoxicated, and although he says he had no animosity towards Sheldon, he saw this as an opportunity to be able to take out his anger on somebody, and Sheldon was vulnerable. He drugged Sheldon with sedatives and held him captive in his second floor bedroom for three days. During this time, Sheldon endured having drain cleaner put in his eye, needles stuck under his fingernails, and his wrists tightly bound with piano wires. On April 15th, there was a man scheduled to come over to do work on Robert's roof, and this is when Berdella decided to place a sack over Sheldon's head, tied it with a rope, and suffocated him. Later, he dismembered Sheldon in his bathroom. June of that same year, Robert found Mark Wallace hiding in his tool shed as shelter from a bad storm. Robert invited him into his house. Wallace was noticeably tense and just not in a good headspace, so Robert told him that he could inject him with chlorpromazine, saying that it would help him relax. Wallace accepted the offer, and about a half hour later, Robert carried Wallace to the second floor bedroom where he held him captive for about a day, enduring torture that included electric shocks to his body through alligator clamps that he had applied to his nipples. Wallace began to lose consciousness, and after about an hour of Robert inserting hypodermic needles into various muscles in Wallace's back, Wallace died. According to Berdella, this was at 7 p.m. on June 23rd for a combination of the drugs, the gag, and lack of oxygen. So, uh, you guys need a break? I think I need a break. Let's read a few funny headlines that I have for you guys. Uh, this one is from the Tulsa World, Tulsa being in my home state of Oklahoma. One-armed man applauds the kindness of strangers. <laughs> this one is from The Lumberjack. Lady Jack's off to hot start in conference. <laughs> Lady Jack's being the name of a basketball team, but you know you 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 see what you see what happened there. This is from the Associated Press. Porn star sues over rear end collision. I don't know. I thought they were funny, um, but I figured that was a a much needed break before we get into even more brutality and awfulness. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll have some more of those for you here in a little bit. So after the murder of Mark Wallace is when Robert's killings become increasingly more brutal and he would attempt to hold them in captivity for longer periods of time. September 26 comes around and Robert receives a phone call from James Ferris asking to stay with Robert for a short period. Robert agreed and arranged to meet Ferris at a bar that evening. 
I'm sure we would all consider his first three murders particularly brutal, but Robert says that this is the first victim that he intentionally tortured. Robert brought Ferris home, fed him a meal with crushed tranquilizers in it. He then tied Ferris to his bed, and for the next 27 hours, he inflicted almost constant torture. The torture inflicted on James included sticking hypodermic needles in his neck and genitals and administering electric shocks to his shoulders and testicles for up to five minutes at a time. Ferris became increasingly disoriented as Berdella continued to physically and sexually assault him. In his log, Berdella noted that Ferris was unable to sit up for more than 10 to 15 seconds at a time and had very delayed breathing. His next log note was the death of James Ferris, which he described by using the term 86, a term that he had used throughout his career as a chef. And I thought that was kind of an, just, you know, just like an interesting detail that he would basically say that they had died by, I mean, basically saying that they had been 86 I don't know, very morbid and, and weird, but interesting nonetheless. While Robert was visiting the Kansas City Liberty Memorial Park on June 17, 1986, he ends up running into Todd Stoops, who he hadn't seen for about two years at this time. Todd, like many of Robert's victims, had stayed with him for a short time on two occasions. Todd was a drug user and sometimes sex worker. When he ran into Robert, he mentioned needing $13 for drugs, which today is somewhere between about $30 and $40. Berdella invited Todd to his house, offering him lunch and the money he needed in exchange for sex. Berdella was very attracted to Stoops, and after capturing him, he planned on keeping him around for a while and essentially wanted to make him into a cooperative sex slave. And he ended up torturing him for two weeks. He subjected Stoops to electrical shocks to his closed eyes and injected drain cleaner into his larynx in attempts to blind and silence him. In the second week, Robert refused Stoops' simple request for a soda and a sandwich, and this caused him even more mental distress. This is rough. Uh, on June 27th, Bradella ruptured Stoops' anal wall with his fist, causing him to bleed. In his final days of captivity, Berdella tried feeding him ice cream and soup, but he was unable to keep anything down. By the last day, Berdella noted that Stoops could no longer breathe in a sitting position. And on July 1st, 1986, Todd Stoops died from what a forensic pathologist later testified was caused by septic shock due to his anal injury. I think we need another break. Do you guys need another break? Cool. Okay, so this headline is from the Associated Press and the Des Moines Register. Deer with big rack female, it turns out. This is from the News and Observer. 17 remain dead in morgue shooting spree, you think? This one comes in from the Associated Press. Tiger Woods plays with own balls, Nike says. Anyways, back to these horrendous crimes. Almost another year goes by, and in the spring of 1987, Larry Wayne Pearson enters Berdella's shop. They start talking, and Pearson expresses his interest that he had in the occult from the age of a child, and the two became casual friends. But little did Pearson know he would come to endure a longer captivity than any of Robert's victims before him. After this, Pearson stayed with him temporarily and did chores around the house as a form of paying rent. Berdella later said that he had no intention of capturing Pearson, but that changed on June 23rd when he bails Pearson out of jail 
and he's jokingly talking to Birdella and referring to him robbing gay men in Wichita. And that evening, after Pearson was intoxicated, Robert injected him with chlorpromazine, took him down to the basement, and tied him to a brick column with his hands over his head. For the first five days of captivity, Pearson endured multiple electrical shocks from a transformer and broken bones in his hands from a metal rod. On the fifth day, Berdella began to trust Pearson, later saying that he was by far the most cooperative of all of his victims. He moved Pearson to the second floor as a sort of reward and told him that if he continued to cooperate, that basically the worst was over and that he would go easier on him. This went on for a total of six weeks, in which Pearson had trained himself to sleep without any movement at all in fear that he would somehow anger Robert and have to endure more torture or be locked in the basement again. By the end of the six weeks, Pearson just couldn't cooperate anymore, and in desperation, he bit into Robert's penis and just started screaming that he couldn't go on like this. Berdella then beat Pearson with a tree limb, rendering him unconscious, and then suffocated him by tying a bag around his neck. After killing Pearson, he went to get treatment for his wound that Pearson had given him and returned to dismember the body. He did this in his basement. He stored his head in the freezer in a plastic bag before burying it in his backyard. This would prove to be a mistake for Robert, and another mistake was his final victim. On March 29, 1988, at around 1 a.m., Robert lured 22-year-old Christopher Bryson to his house with the promise of money in exchange for sex. Once at his house, Berdella knocked Bryson out with an iron bar and bound him to his bed. He tortured Bryson much like he had his other victims, along with swabbing ammonia in his eyes. Robert told him, The only thing that you need to think about are you, me, and this house. After a few days, Robert began to trust Bryson, much like he had with Pearson, and he was willing to negotiate some of the physical abuse that Bryson was enduring. Berdella warned Bryson, I've gotten this far with other people before, and they're dead now because of mistakes they made. As Robert now trusted Bryson, after sexual abuse, he would now tie his hands in front of him instead of above his head, and Bryson had requested this basically to allow better circulation. He would also leave a TV on in the room and leave the remote between his feet while Robert was away. And on April 2nd, five days after being captured, while Robert was at work, Bryson got a hold of a book of matches that Berdella had left by the bed accidentally, and he used them to burn through the ropes that were restraining him. Bryson then jumped from the second-story window, breaking a bone in his foot in the process, and he ran across the street wearing nothing but a dog collar around his neck, and he was yelling for a neighbor to call the police. After the police arrived, Bryson explained to four officers what he had been enduring. His eyes were red and swollen, there were numerous welts and scars all over his body, and Bryson was taken to the Menorah Medical Center by three of the officers as the Kansas City Police Department was notified for a search warrant of Berdella's property. Berdella was arrested that afternoon, and upon searching his property, Bryson's claims were backed up when police found burnt ropes attached to the bedpost in the second-story bedroom. The posts themselves appeared worn in places, suggesting that there had been other restraints fastened to them, and whoever was restrained to them was struggling to free themselves. Also found in the room was an electric transformer plugged into the wall, wires leading to the bed, 
syringes, prescription drugs, swabs, and eye drops on a metal tray, an iron pipe, rope, and leather straps. Aside from the contents of the bedroom, investigators found a human skull in the closet, several human vertebrae with saw marks in them stashed in the hallway, and human teeth in two envelopes. A partially decomposed human head was found buried in the backyard, and in Berdella's basement, police found a hacksaw, a miter saw, and a chainsaw that was covered in blood, pieces of flesh, and pubic hair. A luminol test shows that the basement floor and two plastic trash barrels were heavily stained in blood. More than 300 pictures of various males were found in several places in the house. These images showed Bryson, as well as other individuals, both dead and alive. On top of a dresser, police found a stenographer's pad, or Robert's log of torture. In this log, there were details of torture that each victim had endured. Robert had used shorthand for many of the entries, and investigators later learned during his confessions that abbreviations of CP indicated that he had injected them with chlorpromazine. DC referred to using drain cleaner in their eyes and throat. EK or EKG referred to his use of electrical shock. Some entries even indicated where on his victims' bodies he had inflicted the abuse. There were news clippings found of the missing Jerry Howell and the wallet and driver's license that belonged to James Ferris. A special task force was assigned to Berdella's case, and detectives now had the task of connecting the disappearances of young men to Berdella and proving that they had been murdered. Looking at all of this, it seems pretty obvious, but Berdella's house was cluttered with occult artifacts and pieces of his collections, and it was hard to tell some of it what was authentic evidence and what wasn't. Berdella had a reputation of preying on young men and also been questioned in relation to some of the men's disappearances, namely Jerry Howell and James Ferris, but there was no body to prove that there had been a murder. Ferris's wife identified him in some of the photos found in Berdella's property, and Paul Howell identified his son in one image of a young man hanging upside down in the basement. Detectives were tasked with identifying the other individuals as well as finding out whether they were still alive or dead, and in some of the images there were sections of a body that appeared to be of the photographer, whoever was taking the picture, so Berdella was ordered to pose nude to capture his body in various angles to compare them to the Polaroids. Berdella was less than cooperative. He didn't want to talk. They tried to get him to submit handwriting samples to compare to the stenographer's pad, but he refused, and because of this, he was sentenced to six months in jail for contempt of court. Detectives were also attempting to trace the names of men that they had found written in Robert's log. They were able to trace Freddie Kellogg, who told investigators that he had stayed with Berdella along with several other young men in the early 80s. He also told them about Robert's practice of plying young men who stayed with him with drugs before engaging in sexual acts with them, whether they were consensual or not. Kellogg said that Berdella had tasked him with convincing attractive young men to attend parties at Robert's house as a condition of lodging with him, but many were hesitant because of the rumors that Robert had something to do with Jerry Howell's disappearance in 1984. Kellogg was also able to identify three of the men in the Polaroids as Robert Sheldon, Todd Stoops, and Larry Wayne Pearson. If you remember when I said that Robert had bailed Pearson out of jail just before he decided to take him captive, police found the record of this bond, but there were no other records to indicate that he was still alive. 
They later discovered through dental record comparison that the head discovered in Robert's backyard belonged to Pearson. The circumstantial evidence along with this was enough to charge Berdella with his murder. Robert Sheldon's employers were interviewed, and they confirmed that Sheldon had been a reliable worker of theirs up until he had just suddenly stopped showing up to work in April of 1985. It was discovered in late April that the skull found in Berdella's closet was Sheldon's by dental comparison, and that same day, two different men separately called into the Kansas City PD identifying one of the unidentified men in the Polaroids released to the media as a former high school classmate, and this was Mark Wallace. While in custody, Berdella, like I said before, was uncooperative with police he was in denial of all of his crimes and wouldn't really talk to anyone besides his attorneys. To the surprise of the judge and the prosecution, on July 22, 1988, Berdella pled guilty to first-degree murder of Larry Pearson. The judge insisted that Robert confess under oath, which he stated, I put a plastic bag over his head and tied it with a rope and allowed him to suffocate. When asked if he had performed this act deliberately and with malice, Berdella replied only, yes. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, and on August 24th, he received a further life term with no parole for the charge of forcible sodomy as well as seven years for felonious restraint against Christopher Bryson. Although Robert had initially pled not guilty to the remaining five murder charges, he conducted a plea bargain with the agreement of his defense attorneys to avoid the death penalty. As a part of this bargain, Berdella agreed to confess in detail as to exactly who he had killed, how he had killed them, how he tortured them, and what he had done with their bodies. In these confessions, Robert claimed that the movie The Collector he had seen for the first time in 1965 had made a lasting impression on him. He said that after he had killed his first victim, this movie had resurfaced in his memory and become a motivation and psychological force behind his actions. He told investigators that his victims had no longer been human in his eyes once he decided to capture them. He confessed that he had retrieved and cleaned Sheldon's skull, the one found in his closet, after he had dug it up to bury Pearson's head in the same hole, and he had planned to also dig up Pearson's skull after enough decomposition had occurred. Robert also confessed to disposing of all six victims in garbage bags that had been taken to the landfill, and because of this, their bodies were never found. His reasoning was that he had grown frustrated with his failed attempts to turn them away from their lifestyles and said that he just captured them and then what developed, developed. A quote from Robert during these confessions reads, These were not people that I thought of. Once I had them bound and was using them, they became something other than people to me. I never thought it out to the level of, what if one of these bodies ever gets loose? While he was incarcerated, he tried to restore his image of a good citizen that had just made mistakes. He did an interview with a local TV station and corresponded with several individuals. He claimed that he was unfairly demonized by the media and basically blamed police for not catching him after his first murder, being the reason that he was allowed to remain free and commit his subsequent murders. He complained about prison conditions and claimed in letters that officials were aware of his high blood pressure but not providing him with his heart medication. This continued even in 1992, and October 8th of that year, Robert was complaining of heart pains and he was taken to the infirmary where medical staff called an ambulance. He was taken to the hospital where he died of a heart attack at 3.55 p.m. and he was 43 years old. 
the house where it all happened is now gone. It was auctioned off like the rest of his possessions and collections, with the proceeds going to pay for the legal fees. A local businessman bought the property and later had it demolished. And that's the case of Robert Berdella, the collector killer. It was quite a ride, but we did it. He's a super asshole, but super interesting. And, uh, yeah, wow. Uh, I'll be putting a couple pictures up on the Instagram, so be sure to check those out. You can find, actually, some of the Polaroids um, out there on the internet. I, of course, won't be posting those because they're of, you know, the victims, but you can find them out there if you want to see them. And, uh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Check me out on Instagram. Thanks for listening. If you're on iTunes, leave a review or, you know, wherever you're listening to this. And I'll see you back here next week, hopefully for real this time, for another episode of Murder Alphabet Soup. (laughs) 